Hello, welcome back to the Edge of the Box podcast of podcastboywhoscored.com. I'm your host, Dan Bardell, joined by George Ellick, and it's Sam back this week on the rotation with Jonathan. Looking forward to speaking to you again, Sam. We are, of course, here to preview the weekend's Premier League action, last one before the bloody international break. Just as you get it back and you're getting used to it, it takes it away from you again. The international break comes. England squad is going to be announced on Thursday. I believe we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. How are we both? Good, thank you. you. You're both getting very excited about a landmark, huge signing for Villa. This is big. This is big. Is big. Long Here we go. Yeah, <laughs> Romana says it's coming. It's, it's coming. Look, looking forward to looking forward to that. Always good to sign a player from Barca. I've got a Barca shirt behind me as well. It's always a nice feeling when you bring someone in from Barcelona, isn't it? Sir? Um, yeah. Spurs fans weren't totally convinced by Clement Longley last season. I understand no. why. Uh, but as you rightly said, Dan, everyone at Spurs was rubbish last season by one or two exceptional individuals. So let's not let's not judge in such broad strokes. Um, but look, we're not here to talk about Villa. And no one, no, no, we well, no, 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 we're not here to talk about Clement Longley, and no one wants to hear about it. So let's let's stop that there and say, was I brought back in this week because Jonathan Wilson has been benched for his predictions? Possibly. Yeah. I mean, I haven't got the the scores in front of me, but I know I am very much in the in the lead. I've had four correct scores so far across the two weeks that we've done predictions. I believe I was on 22 points, I think I was. George, you were on 12, I think, from my memory. I haven't got anything in front of me. I'm just completely guessing. And the Sam and Jonathan Wilson duo, a measly 10. Sadly, um, it's the other lads who are on 12 and I'm on 10. But um, Yes. Oh, I've got a you're on the measly 10. I apologise. Mm. Measly 10. Yeah. What's happened What's happened there, George? Because obviously, you know, a bit of disruption for Sam and Jonathan with the predictions because they're having to interchange week in, week out. You, you need to stay the same, really, for these things, don't you? It's, it's difficult when you're changing week on week. You've, you've obviously had the the settled guy make, making the predictions. and Well, it's just, it's hard. I've over-doubled right. over your score. It's um, it's hard to get predictions right when you're predicting Brighton to win the league, isn't it? That's so, true. Um... <laughs> yeah, we'll come on to that later on in, in the show. Of course, they lost off the back of the outrageous George Ellick shout. Let's look at Arsenal against Manchester United, though, to start. Sam, I'll start with you. And I've been thinking this a little bit myself. Is Arteta overcomplicating things a little bit with his formation at the, at the back? I, I just think it's... It's so complicated that it's going to lead to it being a, li- a little bit disjointed defensively and shipping the kind of goals that they did against Fulham at the weekend. Yeah, I mean, look, some of it is forced, isn't it? Um, and you can't get away from the fact that you know Timber, unfortunately, sustains yeah. a season-ending injury. Tommy Yasu is red-carded against Crystal Palace and Zinchenko is injured. You have to factor all three of these things in. Uh, but it's it, you know the, the big question underpinning it all is what's been going on with Gabriel? He started every single Premier League game last year, 38 out of 38, and played almost all of them the season before. He's on a hell of a streak, and then suddenly he is yet to start a Premier League game this season so far. Now, the word we've got is he's had his head turned by potential Saudi Arabian cash, and in that circumstance, Arsenal weren't quite happy to play him. Now, we're previewing the weekend. At the weekend, this will be resolved one way or the, or the other. He'll either leave in the next two days or he'll play against Manchester United, is my prediction. Because once the window's done, Gabriel stays. They're not going to sell him in that sort of two-week backwater no. Saudi window because they won't be able to replace him. So he'll, he, if he's not gone on Friday, he's not gone. And he'll probably come back in. And I think the fact that, you know, when they move into that kind of 3-2 build-up shape and they shift... At the moment, it's Thomas into midfield, but it was Zinchenko. Having Gabriel cover that channel as a left footer, it worked really well. Having Saliba in, in the middle of it as a sweeper, 
worked really well. At the moment, it's just kind of all a bit all over the place, isn't it? As you said. And so while some of this is forced injuries, suspensions, not playing Gabriel has been a contributing factor. And then you're blooding in Declan Rice and then you're moving Thomas Partey in. Yeah, I would argue that some of it is a bit unnecessary. Although I would like to remind everybody that while they're figuring this out, they have got seven out of nine points, which is not the perfect tally, but it's not too bad considering all the things that they're working through. You have to be perfect, really, when you, I when know, you, when yeah. you want to be up there with Man City. Man City, City. already on nine. Aren't they? That's that's the problem that Arsenal have got. They're also trying to bed in Havertz at the, at the moment as well. He's chopping and changing the central strikers. I've not got a huge problem with, but I just feel like there's a lot of upheaval every week in this in this Arsenal team. And you're right, Sam, the way you know, that back three for the balance, Gabriel being the one coming across, which I'm sure he's more than capable of doing that, that would make more sense to me. I can see many teams playing with one kind of natural centre-back. Now, I know Ben White's played there as well, but I wouldn't say he's a, a natural centre-back in a two. And I guess going forward as well, George, White and Saka was a, a nice combination down the right-hand side last season. And that, that's kind of gone as well. And that's a big miss. You know, Ben White was obviously bought to be a centre-back. Um, he was moved out to the right-hand side by, I guess, the form of the two aforementioned players. Um, but he thrived there and, and it felt to me like it was a role that suited him incredibly well in the way that, that Arsenal set up to play. And when you consider just how much Arsenal overachieved compared to expectations last season, you wouldn't think that Mikel Arteta would be looking to making sweeping tactical changes, especially when you consider that Thomas Partey being in midfield was in itself a catalyst that kind of seemed to trigger a bit of a shift in, in performance levels from Arsenal too. So it's kind of weird to see, I think, as Sam said, it seems to be the speculation around Gabriel's future that seems to have triggered it. You know, you look at the first goal that came from a, a very um, uncharacteristic error from Saka in terms of the back pass. Like, does that happen if, if Ben White is there a player that he played in front of all of last season? Possibly not. Um, does the defensive shape or the you know the mishap happen if it's Gabriel and 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 uh, White there? M- maybe not too. But at the same time, I, I do think it's easy to fall into the trap here of overanalyzing a, a, a match where Arsenal were, were clearly the better side. Like it was a an individual error in the first minute that caused them to be one 0 down. They then completely dominated against Fulham and they conceded a, a set piece goal to draw the game to all. Like there's no denying when you look at the expected goals, it's like three point five to zero point five. Like Arsenal were the better team here, and often I think you can be overly result you, know, you can be overly result focused rather than what actually happened in the game. And I think that might be the case. I was almost more concerned by their performance against Palace for long parts where they struggled to create a, de- a great deal. I think Havertz's form is is an issue, like many others. You know, thought he would be, I didn't anticipate he was going to be brought in to play the role he has done to, to start the season, um, especially with the issues they've had kind of in the final third. He does not look suited at all to be playing on the left-hand side of their midfield three for a player who seems pretty obvious thrives when uh, confident but struggles when he's taken his confidence takes a bit of a knock this is a, a concern right now for them but um yeah I, I kind of i think it's it's too early to get overly concerned a massive point for fulham though and showing yeah. brilliant character again to come back from behind in in the circumstances with a man down and get the uh, and get the point yeah, Marcus. George, George is very consistent here. After week one, it was it's only one game, guys. It's only one game. After three <laughs> games, it's only three games, guys. I wonder it's how only, many it's only games one game. until until how many games, George, are we allowed to get worried or excited or any of the above? Ten. I think I, I think if it had been three losses or it had been three poor performances, then it'd be okay. I, I think suddenly asking questions about the um team selection and personnel and the rest of it when Arsenal could easily be on on uh, on nine points from their first three games. 
Um, and I don't think there's necessarily been a massive drop off in performance. As I say, like the individual error was uncharacteristic, but I'm not a very good person to get on podcast in the first few weeks of the season because all I say is, let's wait and see. Or Brighton are going win the league. <laughs> I've watched their first two games, and even when they won, I thought, I don't like this. It, it doesn't look right. It doesn't. It's not not feeling the way I, I, I think it should. I thought they were vulnerable against Forest at at two two nil up, and they nearly could have could have let Forest back back in a game. I guess the other narrative from and Arsenal, even in that game, they were they were completely dominant until the last twenty minutes of the game, when then you know the the, the goal kind of came against one of the play, and then they were under the cosh late on. Like it didn't feel that you know the, I don't. You could have sat there, watched the first half of that game, and think to yourself. That's not a, a pretty impressive start to the season from Arsenal. Look, I like, I like Arteta. I thought what they did last season was was absolutely outstanding. But I, I do, I've just got in my head every time I'm watching it, he's overcomplicating this here. And pe- people talk about Pep overthinking. Mm. I think he's overthinking what he's doing in, in his defence. But I'd expect Gabriel to come in, come back in soon, and and settle it down, and then maybe move away from, from what they've been doing. I guess the the other narrative, Sam, is is the goalkeeper narrative. They've obviously brought in a really high level goalkeeper to compete with Ramsdale. Now I don't know what side of the fence you're on on this, but I think Raya is the superior keeper of of the two of them. I thought Ramsdale should have done better with the Fulham goal at the, at the weekend. Ramsdale has just won got in the PFA team of the season, hasn't he? So essentially he was goalkeeper of the year last year in, in the Premier League. But it has kind of created this narrative and it, it does feel a little bit like, I wonder when when Raya's going to take over. I don't actually see it as that. Um, no. I don't I don't see it as Raya usurping Ramsdale to a, to a point. I just kind of see it as a, as, a, as a staunch commitment to a style of play that involves a goalkeeper and Arsenal sitting there and Arteta saying... Sorry, but the way we play intrinsically involves the goalkeeper. It's really important. And I'm afraid to say that Matt Turner ain't it. And if Ramsdale goes down, if he gets injured, I need somebody else. Because it's now this embedded in the way we play that I can't afford to lose that element of my style. Now, Dan, it's the same concern that you and I will always have whenever Robin Olsen takes his place between the posts. Because the drop-off in level is so stark compared to Emi Martinez. Now, Arsenal... We're in a better situation there where they can actually afford to put a pretty healthy figure on the table for David Rye. You know, the, the, the loan fee that is a loan, but the fee at the end is, I think we're talking about 25, 30 million there. They could afford to take these two goalkeepers, and this is a market opportunity with Rye in the last year of his deal, and say, no, we're going to go with these two. And I don't know if it's like one gets the cup and, and one gets the league. I don't know if it's, you know, the Mark Andretta, Stegen, Claudio Bravo complex for Barcelona. Or it could be, you know, look what we've just seen with Brighton, with Bart Verbruggen coming in for Jason Steele in game three and Deserby saying, yeah, I mean, they'll probably play some games each. You know, they're in a bit of a timeshare. I never Which, liked that. I well, never that liked bothers that. me too. I, that bothers me too. So I don't know how this shapes out, but I actually don't see that much between Ramsdale and Raya. I hold them one on each hand and I say, much of a muchness, pretty similar level. Uh, clearly you think differently, but I don't see a massive difference between the two. I don't have a problem with Ramsdale. He was not anywhere near the top three problems for Arsenal no. last season, in my opinion. So I don't see it as like a, a usurping. I just see, I just think Arteta wants two of them and he's got them. It, it seems a very strange signing to make um, where it's very rare these days that you see teams stockpiling goalkeepers. And there's a kind of a school of thought within the whole of football, really, that spending a lot of money on your reserve keeper is, is basically a waste of money. Because if you look at the amount of minutes that those players actually play, and generally you prioritise those minutes to be minutes that aren't necessarily particularly valuable or particularly important, to go out and spend a lot of money by getting a good second keeper. I know that Mikel Arteta said 
that you know we want to have the best possible to paraphrase and we want to have the best possible competition for our number one shirt but that that just isn't something that necessarily happens across world football so it's 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 a weird change to make and especially given that ramsdale um i think has exceeded expectations from basically everyone in terms of his his start at arsenal like i think even if you Dan, you you think that Ray is better than him. I think it's hard to not make a case that as a young keeper coming into a club of, of Arsenal's oh, expectations. Very, very well. Very exactly. Well. And he's forced his way into the England reckoning. Like it, it it does seem strange. Um, and especially when you've got you've got Ramsdale doing a piece in um in the Players' Tribune where he spoke about how important Mikhail Tetra had been to his career so far in his development and spoke so glowingly about him. Yeah, it, it doesn't make much sense to me. I, I agree with Sam. I don't think it's a case that Ryan's been brought in to be number one. Um, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he does get there at some point. But uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan of, of of the decision to go out and spend a lot of money on a, num- on a number two. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of football to be played by Arsenal this season uh, across all cups and leagues. So I guess to start with, maybe Ray will be the cup keeper and Ramsdale will be the league keeper. And that might change at some point if Ramsdale's performances aren't good enough. Ryan's a Spain international. Is he going to be happy sat on the bench every single week in the Premier I mean, League? After making Ramsdale's... himself one of the best goalkeepers in the Premier League? That just makes no sense to me. But Ramsdale's England international. Like, you know, no, 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 of same. course. It would be the same. If, if Roy was playing at the moment, I'd be saying the same about Ramsdale. You know, he's, but there's, he's but sat there's on the a... bench every week. I, I do think there's often, and, and I suppose it's a bit dif- different with keepers because because um, there's only one spot. But I do think often people make assumptions about players and, and kind of needing to start. And like, you know, the signing's made and it's like, well, he hasn't come to sit on the bench. Or, you know, this player had been loaned out there. They wouldn't have loaned him unless he was if he, was, if he wasn't going to play. Like football is an incredibly, um, especially given the, ex- the extra time in games now, like, there's a massive amount of minutes these squads have to get through. And even second, third choice players play a lot of minutes. And I think competition for places is the most important thing. I think playing for a team who are going to win things is the most important thing. For David Raya to come into a club knowing that he's going to have an op- the opportunity to play champion- Champions League football, he's going to have the opportunity to, to play in a Premier League winning team. Like Look at Jack Grealish, the year that City won the league in his first season where he was a bit part player. He had Villa fans being like, you happy, Jack? You're not playing. And he was like, too right I'm happy I've just won the Premier League like you know that that that's the trade-off so I don't think Ray is going to have any illusions here that he's going to come into Arsenal and and be assured to play I think he's aware that he's coming to a club that have serious ambitions of winning basically every competition they enter at the beginning of every season let's look a little bit at Manchester United now then Sam I watched their game at the weekend against Forest and after three minutes I was thinking what on earth is going on here and then I remembered <laughs> it was Manchester United at home and that they'd probably win the game 3-2 and that's exactly what happened but was that the kind of the shot in the arm that their season needed because that's kind of vintage Manchester United isn't it you turn nil down at home and you end up winning the game 3-2 it is yeah I wonder if they had to sink to a um a, a relative of like Nadia there to 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 jolt back into action and and going two 0 down at home to Nottingham Forest. No disrespect to Forest, this could be one of ten teams, but going two 0 down at home to that team in the first five minutes, it's like being thrown into a a, a plunge pool, isn't it? A, a, of of disgustingly cold temperatures, and then you have to scrabble your way out of it. And that's that's kind of what they did over the course of the next eighty five minutes. On an emergency basis, they kind of piece together a performance that we've been waiting for three weeks for. And no doubt having an actual striker at the top of the formation just helped kind of format the team 
I think, a little bit. And it put Rashford back on the left, which obviously he's much better from wide positions. And Ericsson, I describe nowadays as an incredibly sensible footballer, yeah. just doing very sensible things and just mediating the gaps and the spaces between all the players and just doing really smart, normal things that would fly under the radar a little bit. But given what we've seen from United over the last couple of weeks, it really shot to the fore just how simple but well he was doing things. So looks like United at that point are finding their feet. And then what have we sat through all week? Varane's injured. Shaw's injured. Everyone's injured. They're trying to get Kukurea on loan. At this point, going into this game, you're looking at Dallow at left back, Wan-Bissaka at right back, and then what, Lissandro and Lindelof? I mean, we're three games in. How the hell has this happened with three games in? It's remarkable, really. So any confidence that you might take from that comeback and that performance and that reaction has just been tempered and soured, hasn't it, really, by the by the endless list of injuries that they seem to be dealing with now? What I will say in that game is that Bruno Fernandes was absolutely exceptional. Yeah, he was yeah. at the heart of everything. Well, he got annoyed, United. didn't he? Yeah. And then that's yeah. it. Yeah, work rate, incredible. Just creativity, just just trying things. Things don't always come off that he tries, but he's always trying to trying to make things happen. I just felt that he really took that game by the by the scruff of the net, Bruno, Bruno Fernandez. I know he gets criticised for the way he is, and I've got to be honest, sometimes when I watch him, he absolutely does my head in. But there's no doubting he's yeah. a, he's a sensational player, and you know the leader of that Manchester United side and, and rightfully captain. The midfield balance, George, hasn't really been right f- through the whole series. And like Sam says, I think Ericsson coming in is sensible. He is a sensible footballer. That's an outrageous description, but it's outrageously true. <laughs> United have been linked with a few central midfield players. Hoiberg, which is a, b- a bizarre one. Amrabat, Gravenbach and Onana. You can never have too many Onanas in your team. <laughs> which one of those players would make the most sense to Manchester United's midfield? And which one do you think is the most realistic? I think in terms of the profile of the player they're looking for, um, Gravenbach is the one that I think would make the most sense. Really? There seems to be. I, I think you want someone with... If you think that Casemiro is the player who is basically always going to be sitting at the base of what well, at the moment is, is basically a two. But if you consider the, the role he played... Real Madrid was basically sitting in the middle of a three, didn't have to be particularly mobile, was basically there as, as the sitting player to basically give the ball into Cruz and, and uh, Modric, who would be the ball players. And now his role at United is so different, where way more possession goes through him. And I think in that sense, as we saw against Wolves, like his actual discipline and defensive play suffers for it. I think you need legs basically there now, as well as some creative capabilities and, you know, the physical side of the game that comes with it too. I think having someone who would come in the likes of, of an Anana or someone who maybe has limited um, ability in terms of, of making things happen in the final thirds would just see them stunted massively in terms of, of their attacking play. I think if you got someone in like Amrabat, whose physical attributes are obviously brilliant, but similarly it is maybe a bit limited when it comes to, to being a player. Like I think you need someone alongside Casemiro who can basically do it all, like an ultimate box-to-box midfielder. And um, even though he's very young and hasn't had a lot of game time at Bayern Munich, we've seen Gravenbach perform like that in the past. And you look at his numbers across basically all defensive metrics, across all duels metrics, and also, you know, in terms of ball carries and the rest of things, he ranks incredibly high. So I, I think it's the least likely. The, the the links to him seem to be more tenuous. It seems to basically be who played for Ajax. Um, ah, <laughs> and then and then go from there. Um yeah, of, of the other names linked, like I think Hoiberg's a, 
a brilliant player who offers something that's that's fairly rare in um in terms of his, his profile where he's a, a very very good defensive unit whilst being a, a tidy metronomic pass with the ball but I'm just not entirely sure that's what United need given um you know the ideal game plan from Tenag isn't to to kind of sit in front of a low block and retain possession so it, it's really difficult and you know I've seen it kind of being said on social media I'm not by any stretch Dan before you misquote me saying that he's the answer but it just does feel just crazy that um, United let Fred just kind of walk away without I, any. I completely, actually completely agree without with any re- re- replacement. Where you know he's got that physicality, he's he's absolutely capable on the ball. You know he's by no means a, an elite player, but just the profile of player that works alongside someone like Casemiro in a two. Um, but it's just you know episode fifty nine of United just being absolutely <laughs> blind when it comes to succession planning and and the way they, they approach the transfer market. I completely agree with that on, on, on Fred. I know I know we don't often often agree, but I think <laughs> you're right. Why why sell someone? The problem always was with Fred and McTominay was they were playing every week together and that wasn't right for Manchester United. Mm. But there's two players that can come in here and there for for game time. I think that, that that's fine. As long as they're not playing together every week, I think that's absolutely fine. I was surprised they let him I go without it, getting a replacement. I think it's okay to get rid of Fred as long as you upgrade on him and you actually yeah, buy someone. But sure. so oh, far... I only mount the replacement for him, but they're completely but, different. So far, the only thing that's happened is that Fred has been sold and then they've just been sat around. And I think Amra, I would pick Amrabat. I would consider the fact that Casemiro is likely to spend a portion of the season suspended um, and potentially a portion of the season injured based on the amount of ground this man is having to cover. Um, and I would I would ask for someone who can match his intensity defensively, which is Amrabat, and someone that can actually assuage some of those concerns in terms of like the progression from deep. Yeah, basically, they've been trying to find Frankie de Jong or buy Frankie de Jong for yeah, 18 months and it's been a disaster the entire time. Can you replicate some of those ball progression qualities by also marrying them up with a player that can stand in for Casemiro. And I know the picture we have of Amrabat from the World Cup is eat up the ground and eat everyone alive. And just like, it's a ridiculous, like, like relentless energetic presence. But for for Fiorentina, he takes the ball off the centre-backs, evades pressure, carries it into space or picks passes. He's actually a very different player in Serie A than, than he showed at the World Cup. And I see those two sets of those two skill sets and I see his ability to marry them together and I see a way that he can step in for Casemiro when needed I can also see a way that he can step in next to Casemiro help with those gaps and help with that ball progression that George quite rightly points out Casemiro is okay at but not brilliant at so that's why he'd be my pick and also I think it might happen because he's got a year left on his deal he's not training with the first team he's not on strike but it's not far off it lads this has got to be resolved one way or the other. It feels it feels pretty similar to the Hoyland um, saga, where it's like oh, they've named their price. Like, we don't really want to pay it, pay it. Can we can we get someone else? And then it gets to the end, and they're like, okay, fine, we'll we'll do it last minute when we've been pursuing you. You know, it's, yeah. it's the yeah. Manchester United which is what happened moment, when it? they paid for Harry Maguire as well. They were like, we don't want to pay eighty million. They were like, you'll pay eighty million. Three. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll pay eighty million. <laughs> <laughs> Quick look at the combined 11 for Arsenal and Manchester United, then taking into account league ratings in 2023. I don't think there's too much that could be argued with here, actually. David Raya is in goal with 6.96. Back four, Thomas Partey, Saliba, Martinez and Luke Shaw. A midfield three of Casemiro, Bruno Fernandes and Erdegaard. And then the front three is Saka, Jesus and Marcus Rashford. That's a 
I'll give you who scored the Jew this week. They're, they're two teams. I've not got too many complaints about them. In fact, I've got no complaints about them. I think that's a that's a fair reflection of the. What was the, what's the back four again? Thomas Party, Saliba, Martinez, and Luke Shaw. Maybe Party at right back. The only. I one think you can't. We with. can't. We can't stand by that after the beginning of this podcast, can we? Uh, you know, got a rating of seven seven point zero one. So, but most of those games will have been in midfield. So maybe yeah. that's the bit that we can complain about. Fine. We'll feed it back. Right then, score predictions. Then George will come to you first as the expert in this field. What's your score prediction for Arsenal? Two <laughs> 0 <laughs> to Arsenal. Two 0 to Arsenal. I just want, I want to believe that I'm going to see something better from United soon. But with the injuries piling up, Arsenal away. I mean, what a nightmare. Two one to Arsenal. To Arsenal. Yeah, Manchester United, not good travellers. I think back to that Spurs game as well, which is the only evidence we've got of an away performance this season. I can't see anything but an Arsenal win. Arsenal 3, Manchester United 1, I'm going to go for. Let's look at Brighton v Newcastle. Then we will start with the big news that title challenges Brighton dropped points at home last week. George Ellick, what happened? Good teams lose games, don't they, Dan? They can do. They can. It can happen. Good teams. What was annoying is I thought I was going to be... If you look, if you look to be on the the clickbait headline, a big reason, a big part of my whole <laughs> spiel last week was the was the thought that Manchester City might be a little bit vulnerable over the next couple of months, and therefore it might open up for a team like Brighton to possibly <laughs> um, mount something of a challenge. And so when Jaden Bogle smacked in the bottom right hand corner, bottom left hand corner on Sunday, I was thinking, here we go. This is, you know, I got one part wrong, but the other part is looking right. And then obviously, Rodri does what Rodri does. And, absolutely oh, and the cheapest it. fantasy football assist I've ever seen from Phil Verdon. <laughs> I had him in his team. I was a outraged by that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it clearly, firstly, West Ham on the counter attack look breathtaking. Maybe West Ham, Dan, could be a Premier League. <laughs> <laughs> Ellis no, calls yeah, hammers to win Premier League. I can see But now. it was, but there, there are clear, there, there are obvious defensive issues with Brighton and yeah. it's clear to see that when things don't click for them going forward, they're going to drop points fairly regularly because it's pretty rare and this dates back in, in Deserby's management career before Brighton where his teams do ship a lot of goals because of the expansive way that they play. So, you know, it, it's it's one game. I'm not going to sit here and say <laughs> Brighton are no longer challenges off the back of being beaten three one by by West Ham. I still think that they are uh, absolutely a side that can pick up the pieces if those at the top end do do struggle. Um, it was it was clearly an off day. I thought the finish, some of the finishes from West Ham, like that Jarbo and finish, oh, is very clever, just superb. Um, yep. So you know, it's West Ham were a team that I kind of feared for because I often think that. Success in European competitions can often cloud what can be, you know, a more pertinent evidence for a team's quality, which is a 40-odd league, league campaign. But they've started the season so well, you know, solid at the back. We can just devastate them on the counter. We know that on West Ham now, George, because we're doing them as the team in focus later. Let's let's uh, let's say. So that is why I'm looking forward to talking to them in more detail in yeah, about ten minutes. Yeah, it's going to be going to be a good segment that team in focus West Ham. George, trying to well, you can just see that made by notes. Yeah, the defence, Sammy. It's not like a huge problem. Brighton are a fantastic side, like like George says, but they're without a clean sheet now in seven, stretching back, although I will say that they did change a team quite heavily 
towards the end of last season. They had a lot of games in a short space of time, which won't have helped. And they'd already qualified for Europe by the end of the season. So that's probably a huge caveat in that. But this season so far, they've conceded against Luton, conceded against Wolves and against West Ham three times. It's not looking great at the back for them so far this season. They can be opened up, I think, would be what my feedback would be. Yeah, I mean, they, they do. They do concede some big chances. And they also have random games where they concede a lot of goals. Like they just have absolute whopper afternoons every seven weeks or something like that. It's really, I mean, thinking back to end of last season, remember that game against Everson where they just got pasted on the counter attack. It was like, what, what is going on here? Like, it's so weird to watch a team that is clearly so good. Just have a random afternoon like that where they just get absolutely hammered and they're, they're three nil down in 20 minutes or, or whatever it was. It, it was really strange. Um, and yeah, I mean, they've never put too much of a focus on defense. They're obviously much more interested in, in doing the other thing, which is why we all love watching them. So they are great to watch. You know, what you've just said there with the, the, the clean sheet record isn't good. None in seven already conceded in all three games this year. The fact that from last season, they've lost Caicedo, they've lost Alexis, Levar Colwell has gone. Hmm. They're actually worse, and they're they're worse in midfield. From a but we say that, but don't we say that basically at the end of every window? We do, we do indeed. <laughs> yeah, and they've just signed a player from Lille who I'm not too familiar with, but I assume is amazing. We assume it will go <laughs> for 100 million this time next year. Yeah, so that might that might just fix that. But at least in the short term, they're actually worse than they were last year. I think. Um, although Evan Ferguson starting all the games will, I think, will. Yeah, that'll we'll help. That, we'll put mm. that to bed eventually. But yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's why I was a little bit surprised to hear George uh, guaranteeing that Brighton did will you, win the title. Did you, did you even listen last week, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I did. I listened to it after the, uh, after the loss, just awesome. for extra comical value. Mm. I didn't listen to what he said. I just read the headline on the, on yeah. the Who Scored Twitter page. Let's look a little bit at, at Newcastle then. Odd, I mean, we talk about odd, odd games. Odd game on Sunday for Newcastle against Liverpool. George completely in in control. It, it seemed Liverpool down to ten men, and then just from nowhere, a, a little bit of a, a mini capitulation. Just wasteful in general, Newcastle. I would say in that game, and then it felt like they just lacked a bit of concentration at the end of that game. Yeah, it was, it was a strange one. It was interesting to hear Eddie Howe basically say that he felt that um, Newcastle were very good up until the red card, and then. I guess the game plan kind of went out of the window a little bit. Like I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that. Again, I think that's um, just someone reacting to... They still had the chances, didn't they, George? Exactly. I, th- I think that's just someone reacting to a scoreline, basically, off the back of it and trying to justify why things went wrong and, and why you squander a one-goal lead at home up against 10 men. Um, because, yeah, as you say, they were they were the better side, um, basically, throughout the whole game before the, before the goal itself. Um, and then... It was just two unbelievable moments from Darwin Nunez, who um, we know has done this before in terms of having a disappointing first season, then suddenly turning into the best striker in Europe. The second season, Liverpool fans will be hoping that that's the case. Um, and you can't really legislate for those. You know, the, the, the defending wasn't great. You know, the, the ball through from Salah for the, for the second goal was too easy. It felt like they were a bit tactically naive. Bruno Kimarias um, is not a player that you anticipate is going to basically knee the ball um, into the opposition's path within their own half in, in that kind of circumstance. Yeah, maybe a bit of naivety, maybe a case of um, a team who, uh, you know, frustration having not put away their chances, suddenly when they're pegged back to one all, just panic a little bit, it felt to me. Um, so frustration for them, uh, you know, I'm sure they will bounce back from it and learn from it. You know, the fact that they were 
as good as they were in, in general play up until the, the point where they conceded the goal should give Newcastle fans immense hope. There's also that defensive injury there as well where uh, where Botman has to come off and Dan Byrne kicks inside to left centre-back. So you disrupt the probably the best centre-back pairing in the league over 38 games last year, who scores ratings will probably tell you that was the case. Oh, um, they might not. And they might not, but possibly they, <laughs> but possibly they would. And Dan Byrne goes inside. Now I know everyone says Dan Byrne's actually a centre back, but he looked like a guy who played left back for about a year and a half, didn't he? And they and Darwin just ran the outside of him, ran the channel, and with those explosive movements, beat him. Uh, mm. And it's that little shuffle there at whatever that was, seventy-five minutes is yeah, a that's valid, that's a valid point. And yeah. it, it, it all it does is just you know amplify the fact that this entire game was absolute chaos. And that we should probably just enjoy it for what it was and try not to read too much into it either way because weird things happen in football games sometimes. And there were lots of little events here in this game that created this carnage. George, you're talking about Darwin being amazing there. Allison is an equal storyline. Allison yeah, was yeah. absolutely incredible. This hmm. game should have been won by Newcastle by two goals easily, but Allison said no. And then Darwin did the rest. Can Newcastle freshen it up? Anywhere, maybe. Obviously, they've lost their last two games, one of them against Manchester City, one of them against Liverpool. So, you know, it's not completely surprising. But should they be freshening it up for either of you, do you think? I don't necessarily need to. I don't think it's a great... I mean, obviously, against City, they, they weren't great. They did a, a pretty good job keeping City at bay to, to, to just one. Um, but I don't know there were loads of issues. I mean, it was basically decision-making and good goalkeeping, as Sam said, that stopped them from getting further. You know, you've got the Harvey Barnes opportunity down the left-hand side where he fails to square it. Um, it does feel, I and mean, it hasn't really happened in the two games, but it feels to me like Newcastle are, g- are going to probably beat someone fairly comfortably when they do play on the break at some point this season because the, you know, they've already been one team quite comfortably, I can tell you. Yeah, yeah and that's and true. Are, yeah, are, and are, are Brighton about to do what Villa did and are Maybe. Newcastle about to do to them what they did? Like this this mm. is screaming to me as a, as a similar yeah, yeah. matchup. Like the space in behind, Newcastle will play that ball whether it's to Murphy or to Almiron or to Barnes or to Isak. Oh God, there's so many of them. They're so, they've got such a strong <laughs> squad. Like it, it, I have to say, without jumping too quickly to the predictions, Dan, this is looking a lot like one of those matchups. And it would be very Newcastle of 2023 to put all that stuff behind them over the last couple of weeks and absolutely batter somebody. Yeah, and we do know that Brighton have those those freakish results yeah. where they where they get pummeled from nowhere. I mean, obviously they've lost last week, but they definitely weren't pummeled against West Ham. Before we do get to the predictions, just a quick look at the the combined eleven again ratings from twenty twenty three. Not again, probably not too much to argue with here, but bar the odd slot, you've got Jason Steele in goal, back four of Trippier, Shah, Dunk, and Estupinian. Midfield three of Gross, Gamarej, and Joe Linton, and then Sonny March, Isak, and Matoma as the front three. I guess maybe Botman not being in there would be a surprise and potentially Pope. the goalkeeper as well. Yeah, Jason Steele yeah. over Pope. I guess it depends what style of football you're going <laughs> to play, but it's a, it's a strong combined 11. Let's do that. Let's do the predictions. Then I'll go first this time. And I honestly can't call this either way. I haven't got a clue. So I'm just going to throw something random into the universe. I will go Brighton 2, Newcastle 2. George? So I was going to say Desmond. Oh, yeah. Can I change? If George is doing it, there's no problem doing it. Is there? <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, Sam, God, I can't wait to beat well, you. Dan all, Dan, all you have to do is match George's predictions for the rest of the season and, and you'll beat him. Yeah, that's, yeah true. that's true. That's true. Um, I'm going to say 3-1 to Newcastle. I'm going to say it's one of those afternoons. That is interesting. Before we do the team info, because I'm going to mix it up actually, we'll do that. Let's do the general predictions first of the of, of the rest of the game. I'm putting the fixtures up right now. 
So Friday night, we have got Luton against West Ham. We're about to focus on West Ham, of course. Sam, Luton, West Ham prediction? Uh, West Ham are going to win 2 0. You're still I was going to say, so I'll go Luton 0, West Ham 2. George? 1 1. Sheffield United v Everton, lunchtime offering on Saturday. George, we'll come to you first. 1 0. 1 0 to the Blades. I'm going to go for 2 1 to the Blades. Yeah, I don't think this is going to be a very filling lunchtime meal. Nil nil. Nil nil. The amount I, think, of time... I, th- I think we see this in the corner from Captain oh, Archer. Yeah, I'd be all for that. The amount of times I've nearly called you Jonathan, you may notice there's a massive pause whenever I come to you for your prediction times because I've nearly called you Jonathan about 15 <laughs> times so far in this in this podcast. Uh, Brentford v Bournemouth, Sam. Oh, uh, let's go with 2-1 to Brentford. I'm going to go for 3-0 to Brentford, George. Wow. 1-0 Brentford. Burnley against Tottenham again Saturday at 3 o'clock. I'm going to go for 2-1 to Tottenham. 3-1 Spurs. 2-0 Spurs. Chelsea v Forest. Forest, of course, I think won that game last season. My memory is serving me correctly. To be fair, but a lot of teams won at Stamford Bridge last season. George, Chelsea, Forest. 3-1 Chelsea. 2-1 Chelsea. I'm going to go 2-1 Chelsea as well. That's what, what I was going to say. Sam's had enough of this. I know he's back. Uh, Manchester <laughs> City against Fulham again, Saturday, 3 o'clock kickoff. I'll go first this time and say, I'm going to go 2-1 to Manchester City. 3-0. 3-0 City. City. 2-0 City. And then on Sunday, we've got Crystal Palace against Wolves. Some strange television picks this weekend, I've, I've got to say. Sam, Palace Wolves? 0-0. 0-0. Loves the 0-0 prediction. I'm going to go for 2-0 to Crystal Palace, George. 1-0. One all, and then finally, because we've already done the Arsenal and Manchester United prediction, it's Liverpool v Villa at Anfield. Sam, oh, isn't this just tugging on your heartstrings? No <laughs> Van Dyke. Liverpool barely got a defence. No salary oh. if he goes to Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's just yeah, it's very interesting because it's very difficult to marry up the heart v head. Um, let's go with one all. A confident Darwin Nunez up against Paul Torres, is it? Darwin might not, even make the, might, might not even make the 11. You never know with this stuff. 2-0 <laughs> you know to Liverpool, was that? 2-0 you know Liverpool, yeah. Oh, because I've got a bit of a lead, it's going to be outrageous and say 3-1 to Aston Villa. If I can't if I can't do it now, I'll never be able to do it with Lost. So let's just, let's just throw it in there. At the end, I've got a feeling for Villa, actually. In, I remember in a 3-1 win at Anfield. Benteke and Vyman combining. Let's look at the team in focus then to finish. And we are going to look at West Ham, despite George trying to do this earlier on in the show. George, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll come back to you. They've had a strong start to the season. They've got three players in, in the top 10. Draw at Bournemouth on the first eye, I actually thought at the time. That's a that's a decent result. And then two wins since against Chelsea and away at Brighton. So that is a is a really good start for, for West Ham. They've got Bowen in the top 10 looking really, really sharp at the moment. Ward-Prowse already looks like he's been there his whole life. And Ariola, a keeper who I've always liked, is now there. They're number one in the league. I'd expect Fabianski to maybe play their European games. But Declan Rice has gone. And although West Ham, it's taken them a while to be active in the transfer market, now they have become active. They've made some good signings and they look like they've got a, a nicer balance to their side, actually. And look, just all-rounder, kind of a better team, if that makes sense, without Declaros. I know it sounds like a stupid thing to say, but the, just the balance of the team, they've got more quality now, I would say. Sure, I mean, the distribution I mean, of quality. You know, Sam took that off you, George. He, he did, I know. He, didn't he said, George, I'll come back to you. I was about to go. My mistake. Sorry, One guys. of you can take it. I don't mind. Um, I, I'm just I trying to share I, it around, to be honest. There's, well, in, in this, yeah, it's the same It's the same principle here. Is West Ham are now distributing their quality across the pitch a bit better. Nice, it's, it, it's not all... 
it's not all about Declan Rice anymore. Um, it's about it's about others too. My take on West Ham's window is they've done an incredibly good job of buying a bunch of players that David Moyes can use, but also when they sack him before Christmas because they've created new expectations and he's not meeting them, a new, better manager can come in and get even more out of these players. So they work now, but they'll be even better when they evolve a little bit later. I genuinely think this is where they're heading. I, I like I, yeah. The one ceiling that is placed over West Ham now is that they don't have a top coach. They have a coach that can get you so far, but can't get you any further. Can only use certain strikers, can only play a certain way. Once you get to the point where you're buying Mohamed Kudus, right, off Ajax, you are eclipsing David Moyes' level and you are changing the barriers and you are moving. I like it's. I just, I can't see now where, where they can't look at the squad and be like, right, what we're really lacking now is a really good centre mid or left back. That's not it. There's one There's one piece left in the puzzle. And, I, and I'm not surprised that David Moyes has spent most of the summer reportedly quite annoyed at his sporting director. I think he, I think he sees it for what it is. I think they're making moves that will eventually lead to him leaving his post and them trying to push forward. That's how good the squad looks now. Do you think that's fair, George? Because, you know, this is a European trophy winning manager that we're talking about here in, in David Morse. Actually, you know, generally when they've bought in attacking players from abroad, think of Skamaka, for example, I think it's probably fair to say he hasn't, yeah, he hasn't known how to utilise them to their best. Even Antonio's come out in his podcast and said that about Skamaka. He's a hell of a player, but he won't do the things that David Moyes wants his striker to do, whereas, whereas I will. But actually, these, you know, Alvarez, you'd think that they've, that they've bought in Kudus. They feel, I feel like Moyes can get the get the best out of them just because they're they're so good. They feel like they're dead certs to be good to me. I was pretty excited about the Sakamaka signing, if I'm honest, and, and look how that turned out. Maybe that says more about me than about him. But um, <laughs> yeah, you, you, football's changed a lot um, in the last 20 years. But if you go back to, to David Moyes' Everton side, he was pretty good at taking charge of a bottom-up Premier League team and seeing them through a massive period of transition in terms of the, the quality of player that they were signing and turned them into a team that punched massively above their weight at the top end or at least in the top half of the Premier League. So in that sense, I think he's someone who um, maybe there's a little bit of disrespect there to say that the, the club is going beyond him. However, I, I find it impossible to believe that we are we live in an age where David Moyes will create a Premier League team capable of winning games of football consistently when having more than more ball than the opposition, basically. Like he's very good at setting up a team in a low block and he has the tools now in his team, whether it's Warprouse's delivery from deep, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks. Mikel Antonio looks like this player for a few weeks a season. Right now, we we seem yeah, to be within that fair. few weeks where where he's full of confidence and fit. Um, Jared Bowen is, is a player that I absolutely love in transition as well. But, you know, as Sam says, when you're recruiting the way that they're recruiting right now, it feels hard to see this as a, as a sustainable blueprint for the way that they're going to play. And, I, you know, Dan, you mentioned there that Declan Rice is a, you know, that they look a bit better without him. Yeah, they do in the games they've played because they played Brighton and they played Chelsea, two games mm-hmm. where they are effectively sitting incredibly deep. They're going to miss Rice massively when they are chasing games when they have they themselves have to retain the ball and try and break down a low block, um, which we haven't really seen yet. So I, I looked at their fixtures to start the season and saw they had Chelsea and Brighton in their first three. Uh, they then got this game against Luton, but the next two weekends are hosting Manchester City and then a trip to Anfield. Like on paper, that looked to me like it was going to be a run of games that would probably see the end of David Moyes, really, because if he got the expected 
three or four points from those six games, then the knives will be sharpened. But he's already exceeded those expectations massively. We're getting seven from the first three. It, it probably is a matter of time. But right now, um, they look to be a side who are very comfortable in what they're doing in the short term. How that you know progresses over the season, we'll have to see. If Moyes was to get the sack, Sam, who is that? Where's that next manager coming from? Well, I don't, I don't know, um, and it is too uh, too early to answer that question because so much will change over the next eight weeks. Um, Potter, I mean, quite, I mean, possibly, yes, and that will that will upset a portion of the fan base. Um, I live in South East London, and I know a lot of West Ham fans. It's about a fifty-fifty split between people who are absolutely fed up of Moyes and people who work with it. And there doesn't seem to be an awful lot of middle ground when I speak to when I speak to these fans. It's it's quite perplexing, really. Obviously, you know where I stand after what I just said. Um, but Potter, I think that would I think that would underwhelm 50% of the fan base and delight 50% of the fan base. It, it really is that simple. But I think the reason I say this is because you look across the league and West Ham, like if you're West Ham, look at the league and go, right, who who are we really genuinely competing with here? And let's let's take the the traditional big six out of it and let's let's take a look at your Brighton Villa, Brentford, Deserby, Unai Emery. This is the ma- this is the manager that West Ham, or the- this is the caliber of manager that West Ham should rightly be thinking. Well, why don't we have an Unai Emery? Like we operate at a higher financial level than Brighton. We have a bigger budget than Brighton. We have a bigger budget than Brentford. Why aren't we doing that? And I think Tim Stighton, as the sporting director, was was a- was a step towards this, and we're on that journey now. Thomas Frank. Oh, that would be, to be honest, that's to me would be the best appointment they they could make. Actually, I've always struck. Maybe George can speak better than this to me, but I've always struggled to separate Thomas Frank and Brentford and actually genuinely assess Thomas Frank. That might be one of my own shortcomings. No, I, I, I think you need to be incredibly careful appointing managers out of basically really well-run clubs. I think I've certainly fallen into that trap I think with Nathan Jones, where he was one part of a cog in a much bigger cog at Luton, even though I think he's you know he's definitely got a lot more value than a lot of um, Samson fans would have you believe. I think you can say the same about, you know, you look at what happened Graham Potter going to going to Chelsea. It's another case. Like as fans, you know, David Moyes and West Ham, that there's no question as to how much of a of, of a you know footprint is his on that team. When it comes to Thomas Frank and, and Brentford, I think it's much harder for us to quantify how much is him and how much is the team around him. So I would always be be wary of not only hiring a manager from one club, but also a manager who's only done it at one place before, you know, who's, who's only done it at Brentford before. I think you'd want to have a, a clearer portfolio of work. So um, I, I think there's every chance that Frank is very good. But I also think Thomas Frank is basically a much better version of, well, not much better, but he's he, he he's in the same category, I think, as Moy. He's a pragmatist. You know, he's not someone who looks to play expansive football. Yeah, he's fair. someone who whose success is built on a very, very strong defence, who can set up a team to counter incredibly well. I mean, his, his interviews are a bit um, well, I mean, they're, both their interviews can be fairly wide-eyed and exhilarating. But um, yeah, it's uh, I'd be looking more at a, a manager who's had success, maybe at a couple of places, and you can really be be confident that it's it's their genius, maybe rather than just the, the environment that they're in. Just just back to Kudus, Sam. Where's where's he going to fit in? Where do where do you think he'll play for West Ham? Yeah, good question because. For me, I, I look at him and I see his best role as as a as a number eight, like as a box to box kind of ball carrying presence. He's he's okay. so explosive and so smooth that you want to get him the ball, you want to get his foot on the ball, and you want him to be moving forward with it. And like he's played all sorts of roles, like you know wide left, wide right, wide right for Ghana, I think it was. 
a fair bit of left midfield, bit of false nine for Ajax. I think he said he didn't enjoy that though, and he definitely won't do what David Moyes wants number nines to do. So let's let's no. definitely leave that one aside. Um, I want to see him running through midfield. I do wonder if initially, at least under Moyes, he ends up on the left flank. I'm under the assumption that Thomas Suchek is contractually obliged to play whenever he is fit. David Moyes always wants to play him, and he started releasing him in a bit more of an attacking role, you know, post Rice, and he's starting to look a a bit better. And of course, you've got Edson Alvarez and you have James Ward-Prowse. So you've got quite a lot of important players here, big big acquisitions in this area. So I wonder if Caduce steps in on the left to start with. But if my theory is correct and Moyes isn't there in four months, I wouldn't be surprised to see Caduce then move inside. Interesting. We'll end the podcast with our new, new segment of Can the Team in Focus Challenge for the Title, George? <laughs> No, no. Best time I'm gonna, I'm gonna be up there with Brighton. And uh, even as I say, it, I'm like, could they though? Like, you no, know, you never... come on. <laughs> I'm joking. No, no. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I never know with you anymore, George. I just, I just never know. That's it for this week's iteration of the Edge of the Box podcast by WhoScored.com. If you're enjoying what you see, then or listen to actually, then please subscribe with your post notifications on. Subscribe actually wherever you're taking this podcast in, and leave us a comment as well if you are enjoying it. Do you agree with what we've said this week? International break next week, so there'll be no pod. But the week after, we'll be back to preview game week is it five. Then that we're up. Basic maths has, has evaded me there. I think it'd be game week five. When we come back after the international break. Fingers crossed none of your players get injured on international duty. And as ever, please tell your friends and your family about the podcast. Mm-hmm.